You're listening to a podcast from the Abbey Theatre's Oral History Project. For more information about the archive, visit abbeytheatre.ie. In this podcast, we hear from actor and writer Eamon Morrissey. He begins by recalling his early theatrical experiences and his first forays onto the stage. I never considered myself, nor could I could be officially considered, an Abbey actor, um, because I came from outside the Abbey. I never was a member of the permanent company. Uh, I was a contract member over many years. So I really came from that outside the Abbey uh, tradition. I'm quite happy to, to be in the Abbey. It isn't a reflection on that. And the other thing that crossed my mind is going way back to... I started around 1959, 1960, was my professional debut, 1960 was certainly. Um, and right through the 50s, um, I would have been influenced by my mother. I was an only child, and my mother was a great theatre-goer. And uh, what I wanted to say was that the theatre was in a completely different place in Irish society in those days. It's hard for us to visualise that, I mean, it was really the only discussion point or debating area that was available in the country. It was one of the very few because in the great orthodoxy of the of the 40s and the 50s, any kind of um, questioning of the right way to do things was kind of, didn't exist. So the theatre itself, including the Abbey in, its, in, its, um, in the 50s, although it was less so in, 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 in the later 50s. Um, what went on and what was debated, what the play was about, what the, the content of the play was, um, was very important. Uh, and they were fairly harmless plays compared to what we, you know, what we have now. And I remember from in the outside theatre, in, in theatres like The Gate and, and the, the Pike, the little tiny Pike theatre, where it could be kind of experimental and things. But, uh, People would object in the audience and would say, I, I refuse to, to allow this to be said on, on a public stage, kind of thing. And somebody else would get up and say, well, he's every right to say this, blah, blah, blah. And people, and the audience would have a row between themselves. And all you could do as an actor would stop and wait and let it all settle down and then carry on. But, I mean, it, it, it's hard to visualise that it was ever like that, you know. But if you had any kind of controversy or play that... Had the slightest questioning of 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 um, the, the church's role in Irish society, or anything like that, you were in very dodgy ground, and could expect a lot of uh, objections to what you were saying. So that was the kind of theatre that I, I I came out of and started out in, um, and and then from the early days, because my mother was so fond of the theatre, she encouraged me, and I was I was going to to. Miss Burke's Academy as as a young boy, you know, from the time I was seven, eight and things, and entering into fashion and, and, and getting medals and things and grab. I often say that my, uh, the under 11, I came across it recently, the, the uh, under 11 dramatic pieces or something in the, in the Father Matthew Fesh 
I got second prize, silver medal, and Brenda Fricker got the gold medal, you know. So, as I often say, she can have our Oscar, but I want that gold medal, you know. <laughs> it's been going back. But, I mean, that, that was the kind of th- thing. So I was already in, involved in, in, in some way with it. Um, but it was, it was a couple of times a week you went and you did elocution and dramatic pieces. And so she was quite good. Uh, and then later I started going to the Brendan Smith Academy. That was our great... Uh, um, the only place you could get any kind of training, and that was a couple of nights a week. And I uh, eventually started working in the office as a kind of an office boy almost for Brendan Smith, and uh, and uh, and then doing bits and pieces and so on. Um, but actually, the, there was a moment when I decided I wanted to be an actor, and that moment was actually took place in the Abbey. And now I can't remember. I imagine. I was 12, 13, but I could have been a couple of years old, you know. But my mother, we, we went to, it was a production of um, uh, Plough in the Stars. And uh, not only did, it was good, it was a good Abbey production of it. Obviously it must have been in the Queens in those days, it was, yes. And um, I just loved it. But something else happened to me as I sat there I realised it, it wasn't enough to be sitting in the audience. I wanted to be up on that stage doing it. Um, and out of that, I think I remember Vincent Dowling was playing the Covey in, in it and Philip O'Flynn was, was uh, what's his name, Flutham, maybe, I don't know. But it, I, I just loved it. And really from that moment on, I knew where I wanted to be. Um, as an only child, to suddenly decide that you wanted to be, become an actor at the age of 16, 17, I didn't even finish my last year in Sing Street, you know. I got a job as stage manager of Playboy in the Western World in 1960 with Siobhan McKenna, Donald Donnelly, and a lot of the older uh, Abbey actors like Brian O'Higgins. And, um, it, that was the start of my, my career. We went off on a European, a huge European tour. And naturally, I thought theatre was always going to be like that, but I very quickly learned otherwise. Um, but for, but to go into the theatre was quite to, was quite a you were leaving proper society you really were you were becoming some kind of a bohemian you know and my parents very nicely when I decided on it kind of accepted us I mean I should have been going somewhere like the New Ireland insurance or, or I was also tipped for Irish shipping, and I, ironically, both those companies I can't wallop in between. But uh, in Playboy, I was also the, the bellman. I mean, I had a tiny line in it, you know? And it's one of the few possessions that I have framed is a programme from um, Teatro La Fenici in Venice, which actually, on the poster, are all the names. And I'm there as a bellman, uh, Eamon Morrissey. <laughs> but I wasn't all that impressed because I was stage manager. I had to go with the scenery, you know. And when we got to Venice, it all had to be unloaded off the, off the uh, truck onto a barge. And we, then we had to go on a barge. I said, Jesus, this is an awful kit. They don't even have roads. <laughs> you know? And the barge went in under the theatre. And great doors opened, and, and the, the, the cranes lifted up the scenery. So uh, it was quite a quite a start to it. And then I came back to them. We went to London with with Playboy. So I was in London for three four months with that, and, and again learning all around the place. Um, and then uh, we came back to Dublin, and the stage management was the way to to get into the theatre. Really, uh, 
Um, it, it, certainly, there wasn't a sort of the the, the 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 people say they're an actor and they're an actor. But when I mean, you had to be a stage manager and make the tea and do this and do that and do the other thing, and I was a terrible stage manager, I hated it. And eventually, I got fired. Phyllis Ryan fired me. Um, as a, for I mean, you, you'd play a small part as well, you know, but uh, I, quite rightly. But then I suppose they felt a bit guilty about firing me from this thing, and they actually offered me a part in the next play. I think there was a play called uh, or Mama's Hung You in the Closet. Oh, Dad, Poor Dad. Mama's Hung You in the Closet, and I'm feeling so sad. And, but that was the first part where I didn't have to do stage management as well. That would have been 1961, two, somewhere around there. So from that on, I, uh, I, I started working the, 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 the theatres here and also the gas company in, in, in Dunleary. And, um, but again, freelancing, you were doing radio work and also you were doing voice or any, anything to, to make a few bob. It's, um, but then there was a great um, division between the Abbey and the rest of the freelance Dublin theatre. Uh, and particularly in, in those 50 days, because the Abbey was going, it wasn't a good time for the Abbey. And under Blythe's um, dictatorship, really, for the want of a better word, uh, it, uh, it, it wasn't doing good, well. And they were hammering out play after play after play in, in the Queen's. And, um, and of course, there was a certain amount of envy from us freelancers that they had this um, uh, salary coming in every week, this unheard of money, like four pounds a week or something, you know. Um, but they did earn it because it did take its toll on on that company and they really, a lot of them fell into alcohol and uh, because that whole style of rehearsing in the morning and um, playing in the evening and Plays being flung on with you know too little rehearsal and, and, and not enough examination. They weren't good times. Um, they weren't good times in the outside theatre because there was even less money in that and, and things were really flung on. But we, I suppose, rather grandly felt that we were reaching out outward and looking outside Ireland and looking to, to, to both uh, UK, American and, and European playwrights and things. And um, there, there was a fair bit happening in Dublin in those very early 60s. There was, everything was about to happen, if you know what I mean. The Dublin Theatre Festival of 1964 included the premieres of King of the Castle by Eugene McCabe and Brian Friel's Philadelphia Here I Come, which was produced by the Gate Theatre and directed by Hilton Edwards. Eamon recalls the critical reception to Friel's play and its subsequent tour to Broadway. I suppose one of the, one of the, the, the turning points was... Um, there was the theatre festival. It was big. It was again a much bigger place in Irish society than than it has now, um, and the plays in the festival would would be um, looked forward to and anticipated with, um, and the, the year sixty four. This is the fiftieth anniversary of the start of Philadelphia. Here I come, and um, that was a unique year. Uh, I, it was a gate production. Strangely, that it, it wasn't um, an Abbey production because it would seem to be a, a, an Abbey play. Uh, but Hilton Edwards did a great job of it. it did, and, but at that same festival uh, was also Eugene McCabe's King of the Castle was on. 
And it's amazing the number of people who thought King of the Castle was the play and was the play that was going to last and, and be the play. And it is a very good play. I remember seeing that production. Um, in that first production, it so captured Irish attitudes to sex. Uh, it was searing, you know, that King of the Castle got the better reviews. And uh, I just came across some reviews, original reviews of Philadelphia, and there was a lot of, yeah, it's good, it's good. It's the kind of play the Abbey should be doing, really, you know? Uh, whether it's suitable for the gate now is another matter. There was a kind of a slight dismiss, well, it's kind of set in a kitchen. It's, it's a kind of a comedy kind of thing, you know. Uh, <laughs> and it's been interesting to see those same critics backtracking over the years. Philadelphia, here I come, had, had something else. I, from the moment we started uh, rehearsals of it, we realised we were on to. There was something special about this play. It had a, a year on, uh, on Broadway, and then it had eight months uh, on, touring on, on the road. And then Lovers was the, the following year, and it had kind of eight months on, on Broadway, and I've forgotten how many, six months on the road which was the part of the, the, the Broadway touring circuit. Uh, and they were wonderful experiences for me. I mean, they're great. What a time to be in New York. And I'll never forget the first time I got to New York with Philadelphia, here I come. I mean, Ireland was changing and, and opening up, but the absolute freedom of New York, and it was just magnificent. It was great. I remember when I came back from New York, um, well, it's not, not so much of that as with lovers, when I, when I first of all came back from Philadelphia, here I come, after kind of a, a year and a half away with Philadelphia, here I come, there was terribly little work because I was kind of totally off the scene and things. And the same thing happened in 68 uh, when I came back with Lovers and uh, Anne and myself had married in New York that, that year. There was absolutely no work for about, about a year or so. So I was um, uh, delighted to get, to, get, to get things like Barcel Boy and, and, and uh, start working more on that. I was doing quite a lot with, with the gate, and the, the, the gate was one huge source of work, uh, both um, Hilton uh, and Michael, and the Longfords were still, uh, still going, and they were very encouraging, and I must say, right from my earliest days, I was fortunate that I came across people who encouraged me to go on and do, and, and, and learn more, do more, work more. Um, Lady Longford was particularly a very shy person, you know, stammering with this handbag under her arm, talking. But she keep encouraging you, and and of course um, Hilton was marvelous. He he was great. And then there was also in the Olympia there was Stanley, Ilse, uh, Leo McCabe. Their in productions. The, the, the Olympia was a really full working theatre, um, and I remember. I mean, he, he was so old-fashioned and um, um, the, from a different era. He, but he was full of instructions, like, you, you don't walk on a stage, Eamon, you glide, glide. <laughs> uh, Judy, show him how to glide. <laughs> uh, but again, they, they were great sources of, of, of income and of learning. They were smashing. So there was a, there was a lot of things going on. Eamon is well known for his work based on the writings of Flann O'Brien, James Joyce and Jonathan Swift. He remembers how the character The Brother developed and the logistics of working on solo shows. 
Well, the, the brother started as um, just a one-hour thing I did in the arts club or something, because I, for years, had loved the Flannan Bryan material, the Myers of Appling material, and had been kind of doing bits of parties kind of stuff, trying to get people in the corner to do it. Um, and I, uh, I, I, I loved it. And when I started to think about putting a show together of it, um, I thought they had about 10 characters, but um, nobody would take the slightest bit of notice of it. Uh, um, of, of, he was kind of very much out of fashion at the time. And so it ended up as a solo piece. But having done that one hour piece, uh, I got, I think, Anne Hollis, remember it was on my 30th birthday, it was, the 25th of January. Uh, and th there is another irony about me. I was born on the 25th of January, 1943, which was the opening night of uh, Miles Goplin's only play at the Abbey, the, the uh, Faustus Kelly. Uh, so the, we had a connection from, from, from earlier on. But Joe Downing rang, we were having a bit of a part, and he said, that play, you, that thing you did at the Peacock in, in, in the arts, could you extend it a bit and do it as a play in the Peacock? So uh, I had a couple of months or something to, to, to get it together. So that's it. Was Joe Dowling who who, who brought in the the, uh, uh, the the brother and it started. And I thought it would, if it lasted three weeks, we'd be lucky. When they hear forty years later, I'm still um, people want me to do it. I don't want to do it now. I really can't stand that snug anymore. I just have had it. I've had it with it. There's something about a solo show that one of the things is, it is so occupying. I mean, when the show goes on, physically, mentally, spiritually, every fibre of you is working in it. And when it works, it, it's, it, it's very satisfying. Um, but that does not take away from the fact, I mean, there, you, it, I, I mean, I compare it to, there is room in music for the soloist. But then there is nothing like a symphony orchestra. So, I mean, working with a good cast and a good play is also very, very important. Um, I like the process and it's a very real, and I try to make it as close to a theatre process. I, I mean, I, for example, I'm not allowed to change a line unless I have a discussion with the director, who is usually myself, but I can't have it there and then. I have to have a discussion the next day about changing things. So I keep a very strict, and discipline is very important in it. Um, when I came to do the, the Joyce Men, which was the, the Joyce show, um, I conceived this um, Joyce Men, these male characters from, from Ulysses, as a reading. So I had a reader, and in fact the earlier, earlier script still has the reader, reader, reader. And um, we, we, we did a tryout of it here in the Peacock and it went very well, and then we were going to make it into a full show. Um, but my whole point about this, we, we got to do it in... The Abbey used to go on holidays in June, that, that was the huge thing. And, and, and they were, that was a great time, they were always happy to have solo shows, Eamon Kelly and myself, uh, kind of shared the peacock during those years. Um, and, and so I was going to do Joyce Men and I, I, at the end of, of June, but I rehearsed myself here in the rehearsal room. I, I was just me and two stage managers, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, because I bored them out of their minds. And uh, I actually rehearsed and directed myself for, uh, for three weeks. 
<laughs> ludicrous. And then at the end of the day, I'd go, the, the old train service, you'd go down to Kennedy's at Tara Street Station, and while you were waiting for a train, I'd go in and have a pint and write notes for myself. And, and I, I would read the notes on my way in in the train in the morning. So, I mean, yeah, <laughs> you know, what, talk about it, Anorak. But, <laughs> uh, but that process, it, it, it kind of worked for me, you know. And then I remember at, at, uh, at one stage, Joe Dowling was here because he, uh, he wasn't on holiday. And he, uh, he came in and looked at us. And he, he said, this was about 10 days in, in rehearsals or something. Like that. And he said, yeah, just remember who's doing the talking. Is it you or is it the character? And it was a smashing note. And it's so true of Joyce's writing because Joyce allows the characters to tell their own story. So when you're playing the characters, uh, you are the character. Um, I vaguely had, from the time of the brother on, I vaguely had an idea that I would do the three Dublin giants, the, the Flann O'Brien, Jonathan Swift and James Joyce, um, and, and do something from their works. And I, I, Swift was kind of very much out of fashion and um, uh, he was kind of frowned upon by in Dublin those and yet there never has been a satirist and there never has been one like Swift and I wanted to get break through the barrier that, that Gulliver's Travels was some kind of a, um, a Disneyland fairy tale you know it is one of the most cutting wonderful um, satires on society um, and then I also had in mind that the, 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 the modest proposal, I just, I couldn't, I just wanted to get that on stage. Uh, and I was also been doing, was doing obviously a lot of television. They were the years of whole Victoria, I suppose, and, and lots of other things and working in, in other theatres and, and uh, apart from the Abbey. So they were very busy. I mean, there was a lot, a lot of work done in those years. Another playwright with a long connection to the Abbey is John B. Keane. Eamon discusses the exploration of new and old plays. New play is great, exploring a new text and, and, and working on it. Um, but then I, we, we think we all have a responsibility to, to look at the classics and do them and make sure they, they don't die out and keep them fresh and find new ways and new ways of doing them. Um, one of the things that has happened in the past 10, 15 years and it's really with, with Druid, how, because she's, she's done a series of John B. Keynes and has changed the whole theatre attitude to John B. Keane. And when we started in the early 60s, uh, John B. Keane was kind of frowning, his plays were torn down by the Abbey. But Phyllis Ryan eventually was, was doing them and did wonderful commercial business with them. Um, but he was kind of frowned on as this kind of pot boiler and things. And it's only when you really examine his texts you see what good, wonderful theatre writing there is in them. Um, and, uh, and I think that comes in the, in the recent production here of Sive. I think Colin Morrison and the, 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 they do a great job because they give the text the room. Um, so he, he didn't really get the recognition he deserved. I remember we did him here in the 70s. There was, uh, 
some of the field and, uh, and other ones. And we did a fair good job on them. We were starting to explore them, but there's still things to be explored in, in, in plays that have been around for a long time. There's an awful lot of plays that the reason they haven't been done for a long time is that they're lousy. <laughs> you know? I suppose generally it's, it's got better. Uh, um, there is more money and uh, productions are, are better than they were and more time is taken with them. And, uh, you know, I think when I started, I, I said, you know, you were becoming a bohemian and there was absolutely nothing. A freelance actor was, yeah, there was no hope of ever making a, a, a proper living. Uh, but I think it is even more difficult for actors starting now. Um, there is more work, but there's an awful lot more actors want that work. And uh, I don't know how they can um, possibly make a, a proper living from, from, uh, from acting, unless they're in, in movies and things. But it's very difficult, it's very difficult. I, I mean, the idea of, of uh, getting a mortgage and getting um, paying for a mortgage, and it, it's very difficult, and it's more difficult now. So there is that side. It, it, it hasn't got any easier that way. But obviously production values have, have, uh, have improved, and, the, and what technology has done has, has brought all these improvements. Um, it's a thing I, I still <laughs> have a slight reservation about it, uh, and particularly on a solo show. Uh, this, the lighting plot and the sound plot then is, <laughs> is on, all on the computer, right? And it's all perfect. But you get one cue wrong and you get out of sequence and you're in total chaos. Um, it was great in the old days where you had to physically press a button on a, on a, on a tape recorder or, or a hand sliding up and down, dimmers and things, you know. And it's just a personal regret, just because I'm an old fella, you, you know. Um, but it's so much better. It's, the technology is, is, is just wonderful. And what, what the stories that we tell, I, um, I don't know. I don't... I don't think the theatre should be used as a, a platform for um, parading a cause, no matter how worthy th th that cause is. I don't think that automatically makes for good play playwriting. We're inclined to just get a rant and, uh, and, and, uh, and perhaps people see the theatre as an outlet for, for their properly held and deeply held views. But it... Um, it's not, it's not engaging the audience as much. And I do think what is, I mean, because of the changing, there is now so much uh, visual media all around us, we've, we get so much of our messages in, in short blasts. I have found over the years, and this is particularly noticeable in the solo shows, um, Audiences don't have the ability to listen to language for as long uh, as they used. I mean, it, it, when we started, I mean, play three hours, three and a half hours was, was not really a problem. The audience would be quite happy to sit there and, and absorb it. But I don't think you can do that now. You've got to be shorter, sharper, quicker. And so, I mean, even the, the solo show, the, the idea of doing the, an hour and a quarter show like Maeve's House, you couldn't do that even. I mean, the basic rule was if you went up at 8 o'clock, you couldn't be down before 10 o'clock. That was it. You could have a long interval, but you couldn't, you know. 
<laughs> people you have to give value for money, you know. Uh, but, but the audiences are not. Uh, uh, the, the brother had an interval and has a huge. It was nearly two hours. It was, it was a ten o'clock kind of job. Um, but the audience can't take that now. And over the years, it's tightened and tightened and tightened. And I now do it without an interval. And the last time it's about an hour twenty or something like that. Uh, and that's about as much as the audience can take, no matter how much they're enjoying it. So that's changed. That's a, that, that, that's a big change. And whether um, that would encourage us to go too far into try and make our theatre more visual and more physical and more thing, but that would only get us so far because I still believe that language is at the at, at the centre. Um, old Hilton Edwards used to say, "Remember, people come to hear a play, um, and it's so, yeah, yeah." And it's language, language is the making, and this mixing, this live interaction with the audience, um, this storytelling through language, I think is, a, is, is at the heart and will remain at the heart. But having said all that, in spite of all the, the um, other media that, that is there for, I think there is always room for live theatre, for an audience will want to sit together. It's not, you can't really do it for one person, you know, but they'll want to sit together. It is this communal experience of playing out their own lives, or their lives being played out before them. Um, and I think there'll always be room for that, and I think audiences will always appreciate it. So I don't have fears that the theatre, the, the, the live theatre, will, will die out. It's, it's, the great thing about it is the silence. I mean, this is an essential thing. Of what I, I've said it over the years. I mean, laughter is wonderful, it's great. Applause is great, that's all blah, blah, that's great. But really what you want is silence. When you get this silence, because people are listening, um, that's what theatre is about. And that's, that's where, where they're totally absorbed in that moment. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Abbey Theatre's Oral History Project. For more information about the archive, visit abbeytheatre.ie.